Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Well, I wanted to start this morning a little differently. I thought it was important that every once in a while we acknowledge some important people in our church. And this morning, I want to acknowledge some very special people. In fact, I'm even to ask you, I know this is uncomfortable for some of you, but if this description fits you, would you mind standing and we can just acknowledge you and celebrate you? So listen, if you were baptized by me, would you just stand up right now? I know there's some of you in here. Yes, let's give him a round of applause. Yes. Hey, we even have uh, some special gifts for some of you there. We got a shirt made for you. It says, I was baptized by Steve. Uh, So we hope that you can take that home uh, with you and just remember, again, how special of a person you really are. If you were baptized by Jeff or Brian or Lee or Jessica, I just, sorry, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Now, before you walk out of the church thinking I'm crazy, especially if you're a new person here, Let me just assure you, that was just a fun way for us to feel the text that we're going to be looking at together in 1 Corinthians this morning. Now, in case you missed it because of the ice storm, last week we began a new series. It's going to take us through much of this whole year in the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, and we have called this series A Better Way. Now, the reason we're calling it a better way is because the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. That's what this letter is all about. Now, I don't normally speak this strongly, but if you weren't here last week, or maybe this is your first Sunday, I highly urge you to go to our website and listen or watch Pastor Jeff's message as he introduced this series, not just because it was a great message, and it was a great message, but because, because we're spending so much time in it this year, if you don't understand the context or the situation in which this letter was written, you're really not going to get the heart of what Paul is writing as we move forward in the letter. In case that's not possible for you, let me just mention we had some pamphlets available last week on everybody's seat with just some basic information about the city of Corinth and some of the major themes in the letter to the Corinthians. And if you didn't get one of those, we'll have some available on your way out as you leave. Now, let me summarize just a little bit of what we learned last week from Jeff. We learned that the letter to the Corinthians was written to an actual church, Sometimes I think we forget this when we read the Bible. This was written to actual people in a church that Paul had planted in the first century. This church, we learned, was located in the city of Corinth, which was one of the most pagan, diverse, and immoral cities you can imagine. As such, many people have seen how the letter to Corinthians, the first letter, is maybe the most applicable to the church today in the 21st century. Paul is sharing how to live as God's people, even in a diverse pagan society. This is a church, as we saw last week, that is full of some very imperfect people. Can you believe that? A church full of imperfect people. It's hard to believe, I know. And Paul is showing them a better way how to live as God's people in this world. Unfortunately, the whole reason Paul even has to write this letter to this church is because as he's left them and gone on to plant other churches, it hasn't been going so well in Corinth. 
And starting this week, we're actually going to look at some of the struggles this church is having when it comes to being God's people in this world. Specifically this week, we're heading into a larger section where Paul is going to address some of the division that is taking place in this church. As we're going to see, there is fighting, backbiting, there are cliques that are forming, there are arguments, and deep resentment is taking place in this church. It was a church in deep, deep trouble. And nothing breaks the heart of God more than when his church is divided. Can I just say that again? Nothing breaks the heart of God more than when his church is divided. And in Paul's day, the church in Corinth is on the brink. And so he writes this letter. And very early on in the letter, Paul will begin to challenge the Corinthians with this question. If you use message notes, it's the one at the top there. What is a better way for God's people to relate to one another? He's heard how they are relating to one another. And so he writes to them and says, here's a better way that you can learn to relate to one another. So to answer that question, I'll invite you to take your Bible, if you brought it with you, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10 together this morning. If you're still getting used to where Corinthians is in your Bible, it's about four-fifths of the way back there. You'll find chapter 1 there. If you don't have your own Bible, we invite you every week to grab one of the black Bibles we make available in the seat underneath you there. And you can find this text on page 924 of those black Bibles. Now, as you're turning there, let me just say one thing and then we're going to pray. I want us to remember, who is this letter written to? The church. The reason I want us to remember that is because we need to make a distinction sometimes on how we relate to one another in the church and how we relate to one another in the world. Sometimes we take what is written in the Bible and say this applies to how we relate to the world when it doesn't. This is written to a church about how they relate to one another. We just need to keep that in mind sometimes as we leave these doors. Paul will actually talk about a little bit later how we relate to the world of unbelievers, but for right now, we're talking about this is how we live together, a better way as a church family. And such, because this is such a big issue, can we bow our heads and pray for our time together this morning? Lord, on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus' prayer was for unity for his church. This is a big deal. This is a huge thing. We confess we don't always get it right. But we also have hope that as your word is living and active, you will reveal to us this morning and how we can take steps towards it. We pray this not for the sake of our church, but for the sake of Jesus Christ and his name in this world. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that Paul starts this letter with a beautiful introduction in verses one through nine where he calls the Corinthians to something higher. He reminds them of their identity in Christ, reminding them that they have been called to be God's holy people in this world. It's an encouraging introduction. But listen, he doesn't waste very much time getting to the heart of the issue that is infecting this church. It's disunity. But I want you to notice how he comes to this issue by reading verse 10 out loud with me on your notes there from the New Living Translation. Would you read it? He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. 
Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, here's what I love about this verse. We talk a lot here at Cherry Hills, if you've been with us, how we want to be a church family that is full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, we're told that he came to be full of grace and truth. And in this verse, Paul puts on a masterclass of this, friends. Notice how tenderly he broaches their disunity. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters. I have this picture that Paul is kind of calling a family meeting together here. He uses the word appeal. It means beg. I plead with you. I encourage you. And then notice how he chooses to address them. As brothers and sisters, he's reminding them that together they are members of God's family. They are related to one another in the church. He starts full of grace. It's full of grace. And yet, he also doesn't ignore the seriousness of the issue by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while this is a family matter, it is also a serious matter. It is full of truth. If you're following on your notes, Paul addresses their disunity with grace and truth. Grace and truth. He avoids both extremes. He avoids the extreme of completely ignoring the issue, which I know is sometimes our go-to. It'll just go away if I ignore it. But he also ignores the extreme of coming on so strong that this church won't even hear what he has to say. And what exactly is the issue? As we can see in the rest of this verse, it's that they are not living in harmony as a church. No, they're divided. The word Paul uses there in Greek is the word schismata. Can you hear the English word we have from that? Schism. There is a split. There is a rupture that has taken place in this church, and Paul is appealing them to them to be what? United. In thought and purpose, not divided. Now that word united is really one of the coolest word pictures in the entire New Testament for me. It literally means the mending of nets or the resetting of a broken bone. It was a surgical term. So Paul, being the brilliant pastor that he was, is using this cool metaphor for this church, right? Just as nets need to be mended after they're used, after you fish, you got to mend your net. Just as a bone needs to be reset after it is broken, so do does this church need to mend the broken relationships that are tearing them apart. This is important. He doesn't just gloss over the fact that they're broken. He's acknowledging that, but he is encouraging them, saying, you can be mended together again. So if you're following on your notes there, he appeals that they be mended together in unity. There's been damage done. But you can come together again, even in your brokenness. Now, unity, it's like a buzzword today. As I already mentioned in my prayer, it's the number one thing Jesus prays for for the church the night before he goes to the cross, that we would be unified. There is a lot riding on this, wouldn't you agree? But I want to say I think it's often misunderstood what we're actually seeking here. And so let me start by first telling you what unity is not. If you're following on your notes there, unity is not uniformity. Uniformity. This is super important here because I think this is where we get so confused about this today. Jesus and Paul are not looking for uniformity. 
There's a big difference between unity, unity, this idea that we are broken, sinful people coming together somehow for one common purpose and uniformity, which simply means that we are all supposed to be the same. Don't confuse those two. Unity doesn't mean we all need to dress the same or act the same or speak the same. That's good, right? It doesn't even mean we need to agree on certain issues. Unity and uniformity are very different ideas. Now, to get this across this morning, I, I recruited the worship arts team for us so that we can see the difference between unity and uniformity and even disunity. And so what I'm going to do is I want you to listen to the same song sung three different ways. The first way is what disunity sounds like. Go ahead. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. That is awful. Is that what it sounds like to the Lord when his church is divided? Now I want you to listen to uniformity. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. That is much better, would you agree? And yet, that is not what Jesus' dream was for his church. Neither is that what Paul is looking for in the church of Corinth here. What he's looking for is unity, or he actually uses the word. He's looking for harmony. And this is what harmony sounds like. Your good, good father is who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. Can you hear the difference? They're all singing the same song, and yet they're singing on different keys. We're going to see later in 1 Corinthians 12, God never intended for the church to reflect this rigid uniformity. God is not interested in manufacturing 10 soldiers who all look alike. The goal is unity taking broken, sinful people and mending them together somehow to create oneness. Let me explain it this way. The Bible will give us many principles. You know this if you're reading it. The Bible gives us principles, and those are non-negotiables. Those are things that we are uniform on, that we all sing the same on, and yet there are within those principles certain methods that we can apply them. Those are things where we can sing in harmony with one another. I'll give you the most classic example that has probably divided more churches than any other issue. Can you guess? Worship. The principle in Scripture is that we are to worship God. If you're a Christian, that's a principle. 
That's an essential. Your life is to be about worshiping God, whether that's through singing songs or the way you live your life in obedience to him. That's the principle we find in scripture. And yet, the methods we use to worship God can be different. They can be diverse. It might be on a hymn. It might be on a drum set. (gasps) Principle, worship God. But we can do that in harmony with one another, even if we aren't drawn to the exact same methods. So, number one there, Christians need to be unified on principles, not on the methods. It's not uniformity we're after, it's unity we're after. Number two, the second thing unity is not. Unity is not tolerance. It's not tolerance. My fear today is that we have this perspective that we have to get rid of all of our principles in order to have unity. But Paul is going to make it very clear in this letter, unity does not mean we have open-handed tolerance of all things. We are to hold firm to principles, and so we do not tolerate sin. We do not tolerate false teaching. We do not tolerate error. We do not tolerate immoral conduct. And again, I know where our minds start going here. Let me remind you, who is he writing to? Those inside of the church. Those inside of the church. In a church where a person is declaring themselves to have faith in Christ, we do not say, well, for the sake of unity, I'll tolerate that in your life. No. If that were the case, 1 Corinthians would end right here. But it doesn't end. Paul is actually going to talk about some of these issues that we simply cannot compromise on the church as we get on in this letter. He is not tolerant of certain things. Why? Because those things are breaking principles. They're breaking core principles of Scripture. I'm going to give you one example. You know much of the New Testament was written by Paul, and they are letters written to actual churches. Well, here's another letter Paul wrote to the church at Galatia where there is a principle being broken, and I want you to just notice the difference in tone here. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Whoa. I would say there's intolerance going on there. Why? Because there's some false teaching that has come into this church, we learn. And they are telling people that in order to be saved, you've got to add to your faith. You've got to have acts of righteousness on top of that. Specifically, you have to be circumcised. And Paul says, I have no tolerance for that. That is a false teaching. We don't let that Come into our churches. We are uniform that we are saved by grace through faith alone, church in Galatia. There are things that if a Christian strays from, friends, will cause us to have to break unity with them if there is no repentance. What things? Oh, I mean, I can't spend all day here. But let me just say, things like the authority of Scripture. Things like the person and work of Jesus Christ. Things like salvation is found in Jesus alone. Things like forgiveness can come at the cross of Christ alone. These are essential issues, non-negotiable issues that we don't back down on. 
Paul actually is addressing some of these things in another letter he writes. In Ephesians, he writes this very thing. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's what we're talking about today, right? Unity. Make every effort. But then he goes on to list some of the things that will break our unity. He says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We will not negotiate on those things. Maybe another illustration will help. I've used this before, but I just sometimes need a visual picture here. Our 14-year-old daughter and I were in the car the other night, and I'm thinking, i got to teach her how to drive pretty soon. This is scary. And so we were going down uh, Iron Bridge Road here, and we saw this. What does that mean if you're a driver? No crossing. Stay in your lane. That's a non-negotiable thing. You're going to get pulled over. You'll get a ticket if if you pass on that. And yet a little further up the road, you see this. What does that mean? You're allowed to pass. If you're precautious and safe, you can pass on the lane. And so all I'm saying here is there are certain double line issues that we simply cannot cross. We have to be unified on. In fact, we have to be uniform on. But then there are other issues that are like those passing lane issues. They're non-essential issues. And sadly, what we've done so often in the church is we've made those double yellow line issues, haven't we? And that, my friends, is where a lot of division comes. Let me put it this way if you're on your notes. We're united on essentials, diverse in non-essentials. We're united on essentials, but diverse in non-essentials. Augustine put it this way, in essentials, unity. You've heard this maybe. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. The big things are double yellow lines. The secondary things are passing line things. We're unified on those double yellow line things. Sadly, you've all experienced at one time, I imagine, a church that has made those non-essential issues essential issues, and it has caused division. God forgive us. That's what's happening in this church in Corinth. The reason I know that is from verses 11 and following. Will you read it with me, or look at it with me? My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. Now I want you to listen to his heart here. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now, very important here, I want you to notice what they are not divided on. They are not divided on the essentials of the faith. How do we know that? Well, we know that because he would have done what he did in Galatians if that were the case. He would have gone right to it. He never compromises the essentials of the faith for unity. Instead, though, what has happened in this church is that they have become divided over a non-essential issue. Specifically, they are divided over this issue, if you're on your notes. Human leaders are being overly exalted. Human leaders are being overly exalted. I mean, can you imagine this? People are actually taking sides. Do human beings ever do that? They're taking sides, and it's splitting the church. This church is quarreling because some of them are saying, 
My favorite is Paul. Now that makes a lot of sense since Paul is the one that first came to them and delivered the good news of Jesus as king and Lord, and yet Paul wasn't the only teacher that had ever come to Corinth. After Paul, a wonderful speaker, greatly learned in scripture, able to explain it powerfully, arrived. His name was Apollos. And we're going to meet him quite a bit in the next few chapters. Apollos comes from Alexandria and Egypt. And apparently he went to Ephesus, another church that Paul had ministered to. And he met some of Paul's disciples there who took him under his wing. And they explained to him the full understanding of the Christian message. And Apollos was then sent from there. And he began to go teach in other churches. And let me just say this. This guy was seriously gifted at public speaking. And the reason that's important is because you have to remember in the Greek culture at this time, public speakers were like the rock stars of that day. They were like the heroes. So if you were good at public speaking, a Greek person would have been immediately attracted to you. So just picture this. He comes to Corinth in this church that's full of Jews and Greeks. And he begins to teach. And the Greeks in this church are like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, compared to Paul, this is fantastic. And so out of that was born the Apollos fan club, but that wasn't at all. Another group came along, and they called themselves the Cephas group, which is just a Hebrew name for Peter. Now, we don't know whether Peter was there actually or not, or if he just sent some of his disciples, but apparently there were some Christians who came claiming to teach what Peter himself taught, and it made enough of an impact that a third clique was formed in this church called the Peter group. Some scholars speculate that this group was maybe more of a Jewish type of Christianity since Paul refers to Peter by his Hebrew name there. And so again, you can just picture it, this diverse church full of Jews and Greeks, these people teaching more of a Jewish version of Christianity going, this is much better. Like Paul is way too progressive when it comes to the law. And Apollos, well, he's just way too Gentile. And so they form the Peter group. Meanwhile, there seems to be a fourth party. This is my favorite. There's the real Messiah people, the Jesus people. We follow Jesus, they say. At first glance, we think, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what we should be all striving for? Yes, but listen, because Paul lists them among the other groups of unacceptable cliques here, we can deduce that they must have taken their devotion to Jesus to an unhealthy extreme probably rejecting other church authorities, even the ones that Jesus himself established like the Apostle Paul. In fact, reading First and Second Corinthians, you can pretty much guess that's what's going on here. They don't recognize Paul's leadership. Now, we still hear this one, by the way, still today, right? I don't need the church. I just need Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. That's not how Jesus set it up. So there's the issue, division over human leaders. Let me ask you, would you call that an essential or a non-essential? I think that was pretty easy. Is this an essential or a non-essential? It's a non-essential issue. And so in verse 12, you see it, I love it. Paul begins to gently scold them by asking some rhetorical questions. Parents, we know all about rhetorical questions, right? Is Christ divided? No. So how can his people be? Neither Paul nor any human leader was crucified for the world's sin, so why are you elevating to that, them to that place? Christian baptism is in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Paul or Peter or Apollos. Just to be clear here, Paul's not bad-mouthing baptism or declaring it useless. He's simply downplaying 
the role of the one who does the baptizing. Baptism isn't the issue. It's the one who does the baptizing is the issue. One person described the scene so well. I love this. He says, what's happening here is people are saying, Paul baptized me. Who did you get baptized by? Oh, Deacon Dan, whoopee. (laughs) Paul wrote a bunch of books of the Bible. Paul's a big deal. I got baptized by Paul. It's like they're walking around wearing T-shirts that say, I got baptized by Paul. Now, from the T-shirts I passed out this morning, you can see how this would cause some resentment and anger and bitterness and division within this church, can't you? But let me assure you, if you got a T-shirt with my name on it, as Paul says here, that doesn't make your baptism any better. And if you were baptized by Jeff or Lee or Brian or Jessica or somebody even before this church, that's not what matters. But that's what's happening here. They're making a non-essential issue an essential issue. And so friends, what does Paul want them to understand here? If you're following on your notes, he reminds them the church isn't built on certain leaders. It's built on Jesus. Now, Jesus uses leaders to build his church, but the church, the foundation, is not those leaders. It is Jesus Christ. Let me do a little time out here. Pause, family moment. One of the reasons we're proposing a new constitution, by the way, is because we believe in this. We believe that the church should be best run as a collaborative leadership. That's why you see multiple people coming up here and speaking And so part of what we're proposing is that actually goes into place in our church that we collaborative lead so that it's not based on the personality of one person. That's what Paul is saying. A church's foundation is Jesus Christ. He goes on to say this very thing in verse 17. Can you read that out loud with me on your notes there? It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, I didn't come to you to create disciples of Paul. Peter didn't come, or one of his disciples didn't come to create disciples of Peter. Apollos didn't come to create disciples of Apollos. We've all come to preach the same message. The gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ. We have called all people to faith, not in me. But in Jesus, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, not Paul or Apollos or Peter or Jeff or me. Next week, he's going to talk a lot more about this gospel. But I thought for this morning, we should just pause here, stop here, and ask ourselves this question. Is it really possible to have unity and diversity? I got a text yesterday for a friend of mine who said, I'm praying for you for tomorrow. I know how big of an issue this is, and I want to know, is this even possible? I mean, is this even possible for us to have unity in diversity? Now, I don't have all the answers, but in this text, I believe Paul gives us two answers on how to have unity and diversity. So this is where we're going for the rest of our time this morning. Number one, understand the distinction between divisions and differences. Understand the difference between divisions and differences. What are yellow line issues, double yellow line issues? What are passing lane issues? What are things that we do need to divide over? Sometimes there are. But what are things that we just have differences about and we can stay unified at the same time? Let me ask you a very important question. Are you going to have differences with other Christians? Yeah. 
Probably a lot of them. Again, some people think, well, that shouldn't be. Why? We're diverse people. You may even like Apollos more than Paul. Can you believe that? You may even like Jeff more than me. But on the things that matter, faithful Christians agree. And they don't let those things divide them. Can you separate between the two? Because this is where unity starts. I'll say this several times right now. Unity starts with you. Unity starts with me. Again, what are some of the things we agree about? We agree that Jesus is God. Like, number one, ding, 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 if you cross that line, we're going to have a problem here. We agree that the Bible is God's authority to us and that by obeying it, we find the true path to life. We believe that all are sinners in need of a Savior. We believe that Jesus Christ is that Savior and that by faith in him alone are we saved and reconciled to God. Those are some of the things that are non-negotiables for us. Others I didn't mention as well. We have to agree on those. We cannot compromise on them. But there are other things, secondary things, where there are differences but not divisions. But what we've done for 2,000 plus years as a bunch of broken and sinful people is we've elevated those things higher than they need to be and they cause divisions. For example, let me give you some examples. Some of you speak in tongues. Some of you believe that gift no longer exists in the church today. Some of you believe in the rapture. Some of you don't think that's how it's going to go down. Some of you believe Christians should not drink alcohol. Others think it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. Those are differences. And I'm not even saying, don't leave here going that those are unimportant. Those are important. Those are to be discussed and dialogued about and debated. And in fact, if the difference is so big for you, you may actually need to go to a different church. That's okay as long as you do that well. I think that's where we go wrong sometimes. We leave in anger and we leave backbiting and we leave bad speaking. You can leave a church and you can leave it well. It's okay. I believe that's why God has created diverse churches, even right here in our own city. We have differences, you might know this, with other churches in Springfield. Did you know that? We're not exactly the same as every church in Springfield. We have differences with them. And yet, if you've been coming here for any length of a time, you know that we also pray for them. Why? Because we're partners with them on the essentials, on what matters. We are on the same team. How often we don't think that way. As if we're competing with other churches in Springfield. God forbid. We're about Jesus, and they're about Jesus, and helping people come to know Jesus. That's what Paul is arguing for in this church. If you're on your notes, we can have differences without it dividing us. We can have differences without it dividing us. Unity, not uniformity. Agreeing on what is primary, but diverse on what is secondary. Have you ever had this experience in the church? It's a beautiful thing when it actually works. When I was in seminary, I had to do a couple of internships, and uh, I didn't have much of a choice in the matter, and so they sent me to this church where I had some differences with their theology. And yet, that year was one of the best years of my life. You want to know why? Because we were able to engage in a lost art today. It's called dialogue. We could disagree about something and still love one another. Wow. Wow. How sad it is that we can no longer do that in our society today. Let that never be lost in the church of Jesus Christ, though. 
that we can disagree and we can still love one another. And disagree we did. We went at it. We were at coffee shops. I'm talking about why they're wrong on this. They're telling me why they're right on this. I didn't change my mind. They didn't change their mind. But we were agreed on one thing. A person can come to faith in Christ alone. And so it was an awesome year. It was a whole lot of fun. But sadly, not every situation is like that, is it? How often we have gotten this wrong as the church dividing over non-essentials. How it must break God's heart. It must sound like that worship team. You want to hear that again? No? Okay. So how do we pursue it? I'll say it again. It starts with you. It starts with you. It starts with me examining your heart. Have you noticed yourself getting grumbly or angry or complaining? Are you forming cliques? Are you gossiping, bad-mouthing, making enemies in the church? Let me just ask you, over what? Is it an essential? I'll beg you as one of the elders of this church, if it's an essential, come to us immediately and tell us. And we'll talk about it and hopefully get back on track. But if it's a non-essential, be careful. Be careful of your attitude. Here's a question for us to consider here. How can I seek unity even in my differences? How can I seek unity even in my differences? What does that look like for you? I think for most of us, what it looks like is that second H in our H3. You cannot have this without humility. You can't have dialogue and discussion over differences without an attitude and posture of humility. So let me just ask you, are you humble enough to love people with whom you disagree on non-essential issues? This is such a lost art in our society today. As soon as you say anything strongly and say, this is a double yellow line for me, you become labeled, and the church has done this to people too. But let's learn how to dialogue in humility with one another. Second, second way to have unity and diversity is really the whole point of this text and what's gonna follow next week. It's to fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus. Now I know that sounds so preachy. That's so general. But I think Paul is brilliant here for us to consider this. It's what verse 17 is really all about. He didn't go to Corinth to put the spotlight on himself. He wasn't there to display all of his gifts. He did what he was supposed to do. He preached the gospel. That's still what we're supposed to do. We, you, and I are supposed to share the gospel, the good news, that God became a human being in order to reconcile us back to God. That's the good news that we are to share with others. Paul says, fix your eyes on that. Remember that. Why? Here's why. Because when we really look at the cross of Christ, we remember what actually unifies us. You see, there's not one person who comes to faith apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, male or female. If you like Apollos more than you like Paul, when you look to the cross, you're reminded that I am united to all my brothers and sisters based on my profession of faith on Jesus' substitutionary atonement for my behalf. That is what unites us. As I fix my eyes on that, that the ground is level at the cross of Christ, all those other issues sort of become less important. Because apart from Christ, we're nothing. But in Christ, we have been made the family of God. 
For the most part, I believe disunity in a church comes when we fix our eyes on the Trinity. Not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but me, myself, and I. So often when I find myself angry or complaining or grumbling, if I really step back from it, you know what it is? It's because I've fixed my eyes on myself and my preferences and what I like the most. And Paul is pointing this church back to center. It's about Jesus. That's what a good pastor's job is, by the way. It's not about me. It's not about Jeff. It's not about Brian. It's about Jesus. Listen to me. You need Jesus. You don't need me. You need to pray to Jesus. You need to be loyal to Jesus. You need to worship Jesus, not a human leader. You need to look to Jesus. I didn't atone for the sins of the world. I didn't live a sinless life and die as your substitute on a cross. I didn't rise again to forgive your sins, but Jesus did. And that's what unites us. That's what brings us together as the family of God. That's what we're about. You want one word that the church is unified on? It's Jesus. That's the word. And so Paul is telling this church, stop looking at your differences and look at what unites you. If you're on your notes, stop looking at your differences and look at what unites you. Lay down your agendas. Lay down your preferences. What matters most, do you believe this, is people coming to know Jesus. That's what we're united in. Someone said it this way, and I just think this is so powerful, if you're on your notes again there. On the cross, Christ was divided. That's something we remember every time we take communion, right? His body broken so that we might be united. This was his plan, to die on a cross and then establish a new body. And he calls that body the church. And in this body, if you're a part of it, you've been given a new identity as a son and a daughter of the most living God, as a brother and sister of other people in that family. And so out of that new identity and humility, we learn that even in our differences, we can have unity because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So let me ask you to consider this question as we close this morning. We're going to leave a little time for reflection here. Am I fixing my eyes on what matters most? Am I fixing my eyes on what matters most? I'll ask you to bow your heads with me right now as we consider that. Oh Lord, this is such an important topic, a heavy topic. So we want to take it seriously. And as we've learned, it starts with us, it starts with me. So right now, as we consider this, we open our hearts to you, to your spirit. Are there any ways that I'm causing friction or disunity? Maybe ways in the past, maybe ways in the present. If he reveals something to you, confess your sin. Bring that to him. Fix your eyes on the cross of Christ. We just take a moment for this.
revealing something to you, maybe a person you've hurt or damaged over a difference. Your next step is to go to them in humility, to mend what has been broken. So I pray for the courage for us to do that. Because when the church of Jesus Christ gets this right, friends, watch out. Even the gates of hell will not prevail. May it be so for us, Lord. May it be so for us. And everybody agreed and said. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook. Facebook.